0: Morning everybody. Uh, thanks for coming this morning. Special welcome to any of you who are newer visiting. We're always really glad to have you worship with us. Uh, my name is Julie and I am one of the pastors here. And uh, as Joel and I were thinking about, you know, what are we going to do for Advent this year? Um, what are we going to do for Christmas as a sermon series? I found myself thinking back to last year. So Last year, around this time, I saw a survey on Twitter that a Christian author that I follow had posted. And the survey was about a passage in scripture that's often referred to as the Magnificat. Uh, You might be more familiar with it if it was called Mary's Song. This is kind of the song that Mary sings after uh, she finds out that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. And Uh, This author, D.L. Mayfield, was asking people how familiar they are with this passage of Scripture. And I thought about it for myself, and I thought, you know, I know it's there in Scripture. I'm sure I've read it a bunch of times as I've, you know, heard the Christmas story in church and different things. But I couldn't really put my finger on anything that was in her song that she says specifically. And I thought, you know, yeah, I'm not really familiar with it. I haven't really heard it or studied it very much before. And so, uh, it turns out I'm not alone in that. And as a disclaimer, she's asking evangelical Christians specifically. So if you grew up in a church that was Catholic or a different denomination, um, you might have studied it more often. Or if you didn't grow up in the church, then you probably don't haven't heard it a ton. Um, But yeah, we're not alone if you haven't heard it. It, She said that she asked evangelical Christians, and more than 1,000 responded. And out of that 1,000, 28% said they had never heard the title, the Magnificat, which is Latin for magnify, which is where we're getting our um, sermon series from. Uh, Another 43% that their churches never read or discussed it. 21% said they had encountered it just a few times. And 8% said they read it every year. So reading this survey and kind of seeing it prompted me to think and look back at the passage. I was curious. I wanted to take a second look at it because Mary has always been a character in the Christmas narrative that has fascinated me to some extent, right? She has this huge role. She literally gives birth to the Son of God. Uh, But she's often presented as just this young, quiet, obedient girl who kind of doesn't have a lot to say but does whatever God tells her to do. And last year, after looking back at this story and her song in particular, I realized that Mary actually has a lot to say. (laughs) Uh, So through her song, I've come to see her in a new light, and I've noticed that others have seen her that way, too, as they've read and studied her. So in fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that Mary's song is the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. So we won't get into what makes it quite so revolutionary until next week, but uh, I hope that this sermon series will give you a new perspective on Mary because I think she has some important things to teach us about who God is uh, and what the Christmas season is all about. So today we're going to look at the context that kind of sets up her singing this song, and then we'll look at the first uh, little bit of the song. And over the next few weeks, we'll kind of work our way through it. So if you're going to be gone for Christmas travels or, you know, visiting family, you can always catch up. We've got, we'll put the sermons on the podcast and also on YouTube. Okay, so we're going to pick up in the story right before Mary is told that she's going to be the mother of God. So this is in Luke chapter 1, and it's, we're going to start here with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so Elizabeth is a relative of Mary, we'll see that in a little bit, uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Okay, so a few things here. Elizabeth is uh, Mary's older relative. I don't know why if I've seen certain, like, representations of this, but sometimes I think of her, like, kind of around the same age as Mary, like a contemporary for her, but she would have been a lot older. Mary's pretty young, and um, Elizabeth, it talks about she's been having trouble conceiving a child. So she's pretty old. Um, But the story tells us now, even though she's been struggling with infertility, now she is in her sixth month of her pregnancy. We also see here that Mary is troubled by the angel showing up, right? This is kind of reminiscent of, uh, we just wrapped up Daniel last week and we had a lot of instances where angels show up and Daniel's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> freak out a little bit. So we see that angels showing up doesn't always seem to be a super like, oh, look, it's an angel, right? They're scary in some ways because they're a messenger of God. This is a big deal. But the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. So he's giving her reassurance, hey, you don't have to freak out. I'm not here for a bad reason. says, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Valid question, right? Uh, the angel answered, "The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail." So here we see the angel gives Mary kind of like a, a sign that, hey. What I'm saying is true, and what I'm saying is actually going to happen. So he says, your uh, relative, Elizabeth, she's pregnant, and you thought that she wasn't going to be able to have any kids. Um, So he's kind of saying, like, look, if you go and see her, you'll, you'll see that this is true, and you'll see that what I'm saying is going to be true for you as well. Because if you think about it, Elizabeth lived in a different town, and it's not like they like you know, posted their gender reveals on Facebook for everybody to see, or sent out birth announcements or pregnancy announcements. So it's, she probably didn't actually know that Elizabeth was pregnant at this point. So Mary responds in an incredible way and just says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she explained, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her." So we see right away that this sign is fulfilled, right? She finds out that her relative is pregnant, and her relative (laughs) recognizes that Mary is going to be the mother of God as well, even though at this point Mary probably didn't have any physical signs that would have confirmed for her, like, oh, yeah, I'm pregnant, right? Like It's not like she would have already been feeling a baby or anything like that. And the crazy thing about all of this is that instead of being freaked out and panicked or, like, just confused about what's all going on, Mary responds to all of this by bursting into song. So this is, we're going to start the, the her song here, and we'll look at just the first few verses. So she says, My soul glorifies, or the translation is a little different, but this would be that word magnify, right? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful, or he sees, right? He has regarded, uh, the humble state of his servant. And here the humble, its that word is less like, oh, I'm so humble, I don't think that much of myself. It has more to do with like humiliate, it has more uh, connection to that word. So it's more like low, inferior, humiliated than humble, like, oh, I'm just not proud, I'm humble. And as I mentioned in the sermon earlier, my view of Mary has kind of changed a lot over the years. Like I said, I thought she was just kind of this meek, uh, young girl who just kind of didn't have a lot to say. Uh, I remember as a kid actually thinking that Mary was probably chosen to be the mother of God because she was, like, better than everybody else. <laughs> because, she, again, she's always presented as this, like, perfect, you know, quiet, obedient girl I also grew up in a town that was very Catholic, so that probably influenced my, my view. Uh, but I remember thinking, she must be righteous and faithful. She must have prayed all the time. Uh, she probably didn't mess up very often. And as a kid, I remember thinking, like, man, I wonder if I could be that good. I wonder, you know, I wanted that. I wanted to be like Mary. Uh, but then as a teenager, uh, I was unwillingly roped into playing Mary in the Christmas pageant. Has that ever happened to anybody else? If you grew up in the church, it's one of those things that you're like, not me, please don't pick me. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I'm not, I am not—I wasn't good enough to play Mary. Because as a teenager, I was going through stuff, right, making mistakes, doing things that I thought, you know, Mary would have never done any of these things. Uh, And I just thought, like, I'm not the right person for this. This is not, I'm not good enough for this. This is not the role I should be playing. But the truth is, is that my thinking and my experience at that point in life was actually closer to how Mary viewed herself than it was when I was a kid, right? Mary says, I know I am not worthy to be the mother of God. She talks about her humble estate, saying that she is lowly. She is inferior. She does not deserve this incredible role, And yet God sees her, he regards her, and chooses her anyway. She says, he has seen me exactly as I am, lowly and undeserving, and yet he's turned his favor on me anyways. In her song, it's almost like she has this uh, moment of insight and clarity. And you could even say that she prophesies in this song, and and next week we're going to see even more of that. Uh, But she has this moment where she sees what God is doing and what he's going to do in the world. She sees and understands that we're all broken, that we're all falling short, and that even though we try our very best, we can't keep up, and that this world is broken and messed up too. But she sees that God sees her anyways and still wants to be her Savior. So in this prophetic song, Mary highlights something that Jesus will actually say later in his ministry when he says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then she goes on to say, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one, and here it's like the one with wealth and influence, right? The powerful one. So she's contrasting her lowly estate with God's mighty, powerful, influential estate. He has done great things for me. Or sometimes you can translate it to everything he has done for me is great. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And fear there is not necessarily like, ah, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm scared. It's more about reverence, um, to treat with like deference or obedience in some way because you're in awe of that person. So again, she's pretty prophetic in this, right? She sees that God's mercy will extend not just to her because she was chosen to be the mother of God, but to everyone who fears him, to, or a better translation, again, anyone who shows reverence to him. So the, my question is then, does Mary understand like how this is going to happen? Does she know that this is going to lead to Jesus' life and his death and resurrection? And the truth is, we just don't know, right? She doesn't say, uh, but we can look at scriptures. We can look at the rest of the story, and we do know how it works, right? We do know that how Jesus will make it so that his mercy will extend from generation to generation. Because not only does God see Mary's lowly estate— but he enters into it. Through Jesus, he enters into the brokenness in this world, the sin, the hatred, the discrimination, the evil, and he chooses to do it through a low, nobody woman in the middle of a small, nobody town, and he does it all so he can fix the brokenness. He does it through living a sinless life, and then 33 years later, dying to take the punishment for our sin. Romans 5, 6 through 11 talks about this. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And like, this is what I used to think about Mary, right? Like, well, she must have been a good person. That's why God chose her. Uh, She must have done all the things we associate with being good. She was probably kind, loving. And that's the kind of person that God comes for, right? That's who he is. But I was wrong right, goes on in Romans to say, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is what Mary was excited about, right? This is what was so animating to her that she felt the need to burst into song. She couldn't even hold it in. She was so excited about the fact that even though she knew she was an enemy to God, that she was a sinner and that we all are, that Jesus was going to come to deal with that sin and that he was going to reconcile our relationship with God. And because of that, we can put our trust in him and we can call him savior just as Mary does. And this mercy wasn't just for Mary, right? She knows that. And it's not just for us either. If you're sitting here and you do believe in Jesus, you're not saved because you're any better than anybody else. Sorry to tell you that. Uh, God sought you out. He saw you in your lowly state, in your sin, your imperfection, your screw-ups, and he moved towards you anyways. And that can happen for anyone. The people who are clearly struggling or the people who look like they have it all together. We all need that grace, and God extends his mercy to anybody who's interested. This is why our vision statement at Red City is what it is, right? It's to glorify, maybe you could even say magnify, God by seeing people, our city, and the world made new in Jesus, our Savior and King. We know that his mercy extends to all who take it, and we want to be a part of what he's doing in extending that mercy to those around us, to people around us, to the city, and ultimately, hopefully, spreading it out into the world. Now, all of this is beautiful, right? This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is the message that we often hear. It's what makes Mary spontaneously burst into song, right? She's so joyful, it's so incredible. And yet, as we move into our time of application and talking about how this applies to our life, I recognize that Christmas does not always feel that way, right? Especially as we grow up and become adults, Christmas sometimes feels like it's lost its joy or it's lost its magic. It becomes a list of to-dos that we have to get done, right? We have to prep for, you know, holiday meals. We have to buy gifts. We have to attend holiday parties. We get so distracted by the busyness and the stressors that come along with the holiday season that it can really weigh us down, and it can leave us feeling the opposite of joyful and make us feel the opposite of how Mary felt about what Christ uh, is going to do in the world. So as we talk about application, I want us to think about how can we hold on to that joy, how can we reclaim some of that and recapture the magic of the Christmas season? And I think we can actually learn a lot from Mary in her song. The reason she feels the need to magnify the Lord right then and there in song is that she recognizes her need for a savior. So our application points are all gonna kind of be around the idea of recognizing our need for a savior. And I've got three things that I think will hopefully help us reclaim some of that joy. So the first one is to carve out time to reflect. The second one is to repent of our sin. And the last one is to magnify God or celebrate. And you might be thinking, okay, I don't know how, if I'm already feeling not very joyful, if I'm already feeling pretty low, how is talking about sin, something that doesn't seem very appealing, going to get me uplifted to be able to celebrate Christmas? But I read an article this week uh, that kind of tied in with some of the things I was thinking about. And the idea is that looking at our sin and looking at the darkness is actually one of the best ways to get into the Christmas spirit. So this article was called Want to Get in the Christmas Spirit, Face the Darkness. And it's by Tish Harrison Warren. Um, She's a priest in the Anglican Church. She's written a couple books. Um, But I just wanted to read you some sections of this article because I thought it was really uh, well-written and just helpful in thinking about how we can reclaim some of that joy in Christmas. So she says, American culture insists that we run at a breathless pace from sugar lace celebration to celebration. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues and wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. I'm all for happiness, joy, eggnog, corny sweaters and parties, but to rush into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. We need communal rhythms that make deliberate space for both grief and joy. For me, the old saying rings true, hunger is the best condiment. Abstaining for a moment from the clamor of compulsive jollification and instead leaning into the reality of human tragedy and of my own need and brokenness allows my experience of glory at Christmas time to feel not only more emotionally sustainable, but also more vivid, vital, and cherished. So the line that stuck out to me the most from this was, hunger is the best condiment. Leaning into our own brokenness allows us to experience the beauty of Christmas even more. Because when we feel that longing for things to be made new, the Christmas season and Jesus coming into this broken world to bring that newness is that much sweeter. And next week we're going to talk more about when we feel the brokenness of the world and kind of the bigger issues that are going on around us. But this week I still, I want to drill down and focus on feeling that need and brokenness in our own lives. And I think in order to experience that, we need to actually slow down long enough to reflect on our brokenness. Which is The first application point I have is just to carve out time to reflect. And look, I know the holiday season is busy. I understand that you might have family and friend obligations and things you need to get done. But if I can just be really blunt, and I need to hear this for myself too. The fact is, is that we're all adults. We have control over our schedules. Even if you have tiny humans in your house that feel like they run your schedule all the time, we get to choose how much we say yes to. right? We get to choose how full we're going to make our schedules, even in this Christmas time. And I understand that that might be really tough because you might have to say no to things that you really want to do or things that you really feel like you have to do. (laughs) But the truth is is that we need to slow down. We need to make it a priority to make this time a time of reflection. And I'm not saying this uh, just to be like a killjoy and say don't go to all your Christmas parties, but I'm saying it because I really want you to experience that joy that Mary has. I want us to reclaim the magic of Christmas and to feel like the same joy that we did when we were kids about what Christmas is, and hopefully, honestly, a deeper joy than what we felt as kids, because now we understand the true reason for it and what it means that Christ is coming into the world. And I think to do this, we need to not only just take time to reflect, but we need to use that time to repent of our own sin. Like Mary, we need to realize that we are lowly, that we are in a humble estate and undeserving of such an incredible gift. And now when I talk about sin, I'm not just talking about morality or how good we are um, or how much you feel like you're checking all the boxes. Maybe you have like certain things in your brain that like, if I do these things, that means I'm, I'm following God or I'm doing the right thing. But that's just not what it's about, right? Sin at its heart is an issue of worship. It's about choosing to worship something other than God, the one who truly deserves our worship. Romans 1.25 sums it up pretty well in saying that they, those who sin, all of us, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. So sin's not about following rules or doing the right thing. It's about worship. God is the one who most deserves our worship. And yet we exchange that truth about who God is for the lie that worshiping something else is going to be more fulfilling, that it's going to make us feel better. But the truth is, is that something else was created by God, right? God is the one who truly deserves the worship. And when we do this, when we exchange that truth for a lie, we trick ourselves into believing that we no longer need a savior, right? We have all the things that we need. We seem to be pretty fulfilled, but in the end, those things are going to fail us sooner or later. And the reason I'm saying that we need to take time to reflect on that is that when you think about sin as an issue of worship, it's a little trickier to figure out what's at the root of it than if you're just like, hey, I'm going to stop you know, being judgmental of my coworker. I'm just going to stop uh, being stressed out. Ultimately, that's not going to be that helpful. It's not going to work. But it's also just you need to get down to that bottom to truly understand what it is that you're worshiping instead of God. It's harder work to do this, but I think it's worth it. I had a friend once uh, describe this work that we have to do in the way of um, describing how you have to scrape your windshields off in the winter, right? We're in this season now where if you park outside overnight, your car gets full of ice and snow, and you have to scrape it off in the morning. Um, But how many of you are like me in that you tend to just scrape off the little bit that you need to be able to see and then hope that your defroster works fast enough as you drive (laughs) that you'll be able to see the rest of the way? Anybody else? Come on, I know you guys do it, Okay. Uh, so the problem with this is that, right, we know that this is not a good thing. It's a little dangerous. Um, I know I should not do it. And it's similar with sin, right? When we just try to scrape off the, the top or just scrape off the thing that we're, we can clearly see that we're doing, right? Being judgmental, being anxious, whatever it is. It's not going to work and it's not going to lead to the best results. Doing the hard work of drilling down and figuring out the root of your sin It's like taking the time to scrape off all of your windshield, any of your windows that also got fogged up or iced up, your mirrors. My dad even always was like, make sure you scrape off your headlights because then you can't see them as well if they're covered in ice. So drilling down and doing that is like scraping off the whole car. You're going to get a better result, and in the long run, it's just going to be more effective for you. So when you drill down on like, right, take an example, you snapped at your spouse or your roommate or your kid, whoever it is, and you have to really look at it. Why did I feel like in that moment I was justified in hurting someone I care about? What was it that felt so important to me that snapping didn't seem like that big of a deal? You know, as an example, something for me that often happens, maybe it's just that whoever it was was threatening your feeling of being in control. Right? They're changing plans, or they're doing something that feels outside of what you expected to happen. That happens to me a lot, and when I do, I have to ask myself, why did I care so much? Why did it bother me? And if I can get down to the bottom, you can see, huh, maybe I was worshiping my desire to be in control of situations more than I was worshiping God. But the funny thing is, is that God's in control of everything. So if I turn that worship and turn towards God, I'm actually going to be more fulfilled, and I'm going to see that sin more clearly. And truly, this is where we get the most joy. When we actually get down to the root of that and are able to see the ways that we worship something other than God, uh, when we turn and repent to him and choose to worship him instead, that's where you're going to get the joy. You're going to see that the gift of God, the gift of Jesus coming into the world, was so much sweeter because you felt the need for it. You felt your own brokenness. And Joy doesn't have to look like singing, right? Like the example is that Mary burst into song because she's so joyful about it. But I understand that not everybody's a singer. uh, And so I don't expect all of you to burst into song because of this joy about Christ. And it doesn't even have to look like happiness in the traditional way we think about it, right? It doesn't have to be super cheerful. But I think the joy that we have in worshiping God is something deeper and more sustaining than any of those other things. It's a deeper awe and wonder of what God has done for us that leads us to praise him, which is our last application point. Magnify God, and in parentheses I just put celebrate, right? We can magnify God in a lot of ways. You can do it on your own through prayer, um, through worship of any way, but we can also do it corporately, right? And that's what we're going to do this afternoon. We're going to have a Christmas party, and we're going to be joyful and celebrate, But the thing is, is before we do that, before we just rush into that all the time, it's good for us to take time to reflect and repent of our own sin. So like I said, we're gonna have our Christmas party. I'd love for all of you guys to come. Even if you're newer to Res City, we'd love to have you. It's gonna be from four to six at the Knox, which is um, honestly just a couple blocks from here. If you type in Knox International Center in your GPS, it'll just take you right there. Um, But really, we'd love to have you come and celebrate with us. But before we do that, we are going to move into a time of communion, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. But communion is a great way to do this, actually, because it gives us a chance to practice these application points. It gives us time to truly reflect on our sin. So in this time, I'd ask you, invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal uh, an area of sin to you. Right? I'm not. You don't have to ask for Him to like dump every sin that you've ever committed onto you, but just say. Hey, what's something in the last 24 hours? Help me see a way that I've been worshiping something other than God. And then as you do that, repent of that sin. Turn to God and worship him instead. So we'll get a chance to do that. You can remember what Christ did for us on the cross by coming up and taking communion. Um, And then we get to worship and celebrate together, right? We get to magnify God. We're going to be singing, But if singing's not your thing, that's okay. We'll also have someone in the back if you want to pray. Um, And we also see giving as a way to respond to God and to worship him. So we are going to continue to worship and do communion. We invite everyone to come up for communion. We just ask that you are a follower of God, right? We ask that this is something that you've seen in your own life. Uh, You've seen your brokenness and you've accepted Christ's grace through that. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then the worship team is going to come up. And I thought, as I wrapped this up and prayed, uh, that it would be helpful just to pray some of what Mary prays, right? So that we can remember that this is for us as well. So please pray with me. Lord, our souls magnify you, and our spirits rejoice in you as God our Savior. For you have been mindful of the humble state of our, your servants, For the mighty one, you have done great things for us. Holy is your name. Your mercy extends to all of those who fear you from generation to generation. Lord, we pray that as we are in this Christmas season, that we would be able to say those words of Mary, that we would think them um, and be able to see the truth about what Christmas is, that we would not be distracted uh, by the busyness and the tasks and the different things that happen, but that we would be able to Find time to reflect, find time to repent of our own sin, and then take the time to celebrate, right? Go to the holiday parties to uh, experience your joy in that. We pray all these things in your name, amen.